I want to read to you um, from Scripture one of my favorite passages, especially at this time of year. This is Isaiah's prophecy of what we're commemorating that he wrote 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Uh, in Isaiah 53, he says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus, we are assembled before you tonight just to remember and give thanks for the great price that was paid. Lord, how you bore our griefs and carried our sorrows and were bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, that you took upon yourself the chastisement that brought us peace and have healed us by your wounds. Lord, we thank you that um, you have are now taken the place as those who as as the one who intercedes for transgressors like us lord and you call us to yourself and you make us holy and you make this make us sanctified lord because you you took on our sin and took our place on the cross the place that we deserved you took it and so lord we thank you for that we thank you and we pray that as we remember that that day that for you was so awful and for us that was so good. We pray that you would help us to be truly worshiping you tonight with every thought, with every action, with every motive, with every part of our, our being. 
Lord, let us be turned to worship. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 15. I want to read just a couple of verses with you. And so if you find Mark chapter 15, we're going to begin with verse 20. And we'll read verses 20 and 21. Hear the word of the Lord. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Thus says God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved for us four accounts of this day where you took upon yourself the sins of the world and drank to the full the cup of God's wrath. And you didn't do it for any sins or crimes of your own. You did it in our stead, in our place, God. And in that moment, Jesus, you not only took our punishment, but you granted to us your righteousness. And so all we can do is worship you for this reality and give thanks to you that we are accounted righteous because of your great sacrifice. And Lord, I also just ask you that you would let us in this brief moment that we have together just see the beauty and the value of the cross and to hear its call. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So on Friday of the Passover, Jesus has been deprived of all sleep. He's been abandoned by his closest friends. One has betrayed him. Another has denied even knowing him three separate times. He's been made to endure not one, not two, but three trials. He faced a trial before the the uh, religious leaders in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders. He faced the representative of the Jewish government in Herod, and then he faced the representative of the entire known world in Pontius Pilate. During all this time, he's mocked, he's spit upon, he's punched, he's struck on the head with a reed, he's brutally scourged by a Roman cat of nine tails, And he's finally crowned with thorns. And now the time has come in this saga for his final sentence to be carried out. And he's led out of the city of Jerusalem, carrying his own cross to be crucified. Now an interesting thing about this is it is only John of the four gospel writers who tells us that Jesus carried his own cross. But because of a detail that's inserted into the story by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's assumed that Jesus, as anyone would expect him to be, weakened by all of those things I mentioned, the lack of sleep, the the torment that he'd suffered, massive physical trauma, extreme blood loss, because of this, he physically cannot carry his cross all the way to the place of his own execution. 
And so the soldiers escorting Christ up to Golgotha, they lay hands on an innocent bystander, and they they place this crossbeam of the instrument of Christ's own death on his shoulders. And they the the Matthew and Mark say that the soldiers compelled him. Um, Luke says that they seized him. The the picture that's being painted for us here is not of them politely asking for help for this weakened, condemned man. There, there's orders, there's force, there's violence that's being portrayed. This man wasn't kindly asked to do this. Mark calls this man a passerby. He and Luke uh, add this detail that he was coming in from the country. All three of the synoptic uh, writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that he was from a place called Cyrene. Now, Cyrene is a, a city located far from Jerusalem on the north coast of Africa. It's actually located in modern-day Libya. And it had, in those days, a very large Jewish population. Now, as I mentioned, these events all occurred during Passover, the most important festival of the Jewish people. And so uh, people from all over, Jews from all over the Roman Empire were in Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. And that's what brought this man all the way from Cyrene to Jerusalem. So we know some things about him. He wasn't a local. He wasn't one of Jesus's companions. In fact, more than likely, he had never heard of Jesus, never met Jesus, never looked at Jesus. And here he was, forced to carry the cross of a man who had been condemned to die. Now, all three writers tell us that this man's name was Simon. Uh, when, when I watched movies about the life of Christ, we watched three or four of them when I was a kid in my home. When I watched movies, Simon, in this last chapter before the resurrection, always played a very important role. He was, he was kind of a big deal in the, in the, the portrayal of the events of Christ's crucifixion. When I heard about, uh, Jesus' crucifixion and stories of Sunday school, Simon always played a prominent role in those stories. But, but here's the deal. It may surprise you that in all 66 books of the Bible, there are three verses that mention Simon of Cyrene. There's one in Matthew. There's one in Mark, and there's one in Luke. And by and large, those three verses say exactly the same thing. What am I saying? We don't have a lot of information about this man, and yet all all three of the synoptic writers um, thought he was important enough to record his name and his brief snapshot of his story in the book uh, that they were writing to tell the story of Jesus. Mark adds an interesting detail that... As we go along, hopefully we'll become a little bit more important. But he adds an interesting detail that the other writers leave out. He says that Simon was the father of Rufus and Alexander, or Alexander and Rufus is the order he puts it in. It's almost as if, the way Mark writes, I said, this is Simon, the father of, of uh, Alexander and Rufus, and it's almost as if Mark is writing in such a way that he says... Uh, you know, that he assumes that his readers are going to know exactly who he's talking about. That's really interesting to me. If, 
if you were a guest and you asked about people in our church, I said, well, one of our elders is Pastor Dave, and he grew up in Austria, and these are some details about him. I would go into more details about him. But you guys who go here every week, I would say, you know, go talk to Dave. Go, talk, go ask Dave. Some of that. I wouldn't give all the details. Why? Because you know Dave. You know all that background information. And it seems like by the, by the abrupt mention of these two guys, that might be, going, that might be happening here. And like I said, the importance of that will maybe become more apparent later. This becomes even more interesting when we realize, and we studied this as we began our series on the book of Mark, that Mark spent the majority of his working in ministry assisting the apostle Peter in the city of Rome. Now keep that in mind as we look at this. In Paul's letter to the Romans... Um, he, chapter 16 is just filled with people that he wants to greet, that he wants to tell them that he's thinking about them, that sort of thing. And in uh, verse 13 of Romans 16, he says this. Watch this. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. So there seems to be the possibility of a connection that Mark is talking about in his in his gospel story about this a person who was a young man at that time um, who somehow wound up in Rome that he knew and the people he was writing to about the story of Jesus would have known him as well and so that they would know that that connection. Now, I say all that, theologians can't be 100% certain that Mark and Paul are talking about the same Rufus, but the lines that are drawn by the text make this an interesting possibility to consider. And as I've considered over the last several weeks, it made me wonder, just that little bit of stuff made me wonder, I wonder what could have happened to Simon, a man who is so very briefly mentioned in the Gospels and yet mentioned by name. But I also wondered, if, as we have this one guy that is so important to memorialize, what can we extract from his inclusion in the text that would be beneficial to us as we set aside time tonight to meditate on the death of Jesus for Good Friday? What does the Bible, what purpose does the Bible memorialize him for? Well, it's poss- is it possible that after being an eyewitness closer than just about anybody to the sufferings of Jesus, watching him stagger up Calvary, seeing his beaten body, hearing his cries of agony as the nails are placed in his hands and feet, that he subsequently believed. Could he have even been among the crowd several days later on the day of Pentecost when the theological depth of what had just happened on the cross had been explained in Peter's preaching? As I said, I can't know any of that for sure. The Bible certainly doesn't tell us that in plain language. But here's what I am certain of. That Simon's actions on the day of Jesus' great sacrifice were given to us for a reason. Just like Pilate's, just like Barabbas's, just like Judas, all of the ones we've talked about in the last few weeks. And to understand the reason, we first have to consider the meaning of the cross. Now, for many of us as Christians, the cross is just something we take for granted. But I think it would be good for us to pause and think about what exactly happened on the cross. And what was the message of the cross to us? First, what most of us will immediately jump to 
is that the message of the cross is redemption. It's the message of God redeeming us. What that means is that souls that were lost were found by God. Children that were estranged from God were reconciled back to Him as their father. The curse of sin was irreparably broken. And those that were once dead in their trespasses and in their sins were made alive. And this was all made possible, all this act of redemption, by a, by a twofold transaction on the part of God. The first part of that transaction is the pouring out of all of God's wrath for sin on the sacred head of His holy and innocent Son, who became the sacrificial lamb, taking away the bloodstain of guilt for all who would believe in Him. But the second part of this transaction is this, that the filthy rags that represented our feeble attempts at religious righteousness, the the grave wrappings of sin and death have been replaced if we've believed and and we're clothed now with Christ's perfect righteousness. The, the, The Puritan Thomas Brooks distilled this into a prayer he prayed, and it's so beautiful. This is what he said. He He's praying and he says, O Christ, I am your sin. But you are my righteousness. I am your curse. But you are my blessing. I am your death. But you are my life. I am the wrath of God to you. But you are the love of God to me. Jesus, I am your hell. But you are my heaven. Paul said very much the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he said, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this idea of redemption is the glorious reason that we have gathered tonight to celebrate. It's why we would have the audacity to call a day that commemorates the bloody, unjust death of the innocent King of Heaven, Good Friday. Out of the greatest crime in all of history, out of the darkest day that ever will be, God has brought unconquerable light, endless mercy, eternal joy, and absolute glory for His own name. But there's another message that the cross preaches to us as believers. And we have to first understand all the things we just said. We have to understand the message of redemption in order to embrace the second message. But the second message is just as valid. And in fact, it's inseparable from the message of redemption. Though a lot of people now especially try to embrace the message of the cross as a one-sided message or in a one-sided manner. See, the second message or the second call of the cross is that of identification. The New Testament from Matthew to Revelation does not allow us to simply gaze upon the cross and simply believe that something 
powerful and something beneficial happen there, which is true, but then to walk away having made no sacrifice and laying nothing down. See, the demand of the entire New Testament is that we carry the cross. It's that we embrace the cross. It's that we identify the cross to the point where we die on the cross. That is the message of the New Testament. We can't just say, look what Jesus did. We have to see, look what Jesus is calling me to. I can prove it. From the words of our Lord himself, Matthew 16, 24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? See, this wasn't just something that Jesus said as a one-off kind of thing. This was the message preached by the apostles in the New Testament as well. In Galatians, Paul says that he has been crucified with Christ. And that now he lives by faith in the Son of God. He says that those who belong to Christ... Crucify the flesh with its passions. He says that he will not boast in anything but the cross of Christ. In Romans, he describes salvation as our old self literally being crucified with Jesus. In Philippians, he calls false Christians enemies of the cross of Christ. This is why at Northridge, We decry a feel-good prosperity gospel of comfortably living your best life now. We have no use for that because Paul said, I die daily. He said that we're like sheep that are daily led to the slaughter. A truly Christian life, listen to me please, is a cross-saturated life. And this doesn't mean some weird cultic, fatalistic pursuit of martyrdom, like, you know, let's see how how we can suffer so we can prove our own holiness. What it means is that that this is what the cross looks like for you and me. It, It means that we surrender our desires, we surrender our intentions, we surrender our plans to the very one who knows what is best for us. And we realize that what is best for us is the very thing that will bring Him the most glory, honor, and praise, regardless of the cost. Hebrews 12.1 also captures this thought about the cross and embracing and identifying the cross. It says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's saying, look, this is going to be hard, but this is what you do. You lay aside the stuff that that, that holds you back from, from pursuing Christ. And you keep running. That's what it means to run with endurance. You fall down, you get up, you keep running, you keep going, you keep moving forward. The race that is set before us. And the key to success in this race is in verse 2. Looking to Jesus. The founder and the perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We run with endurance. Jesus ran with endurance. 
despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is the kind of life I think that Simon of Cyrene helps us to understand. Laying aside sin, which is the crucifying of our flesh, and looking to Jesus, emulating his endurance of the cross, pursuing the joy that comes after it, even as we despise its shame. See, the first analogy of Simon is very interesting. I don't know if you've ever considered this, but Simon did not go looking for Jesus. He was in town for a party. He was in town for a festival, a celebration. He had his plan. He had his agenda. He probably had a list of things he wanted to see in Jerusalem, to do in Jerusalem, maybe some people he wanted to talk to in Jerusalem. But he saw a crowd. And while He was certainly probably interested in what this crowd was doing there. He didn't sign up to participate into what was going on. He was a passerby. He was a bystander. He was just another face in the crowd. See, the idea that's very popular right now in Christianity, this idea of the seeker after Jesus is an evangelical myth. They do not exist. I can prove it. Romans 3.11 No one seeks for God. See, all of us were like Simon. We were doing our own thing, enjoying the life of the party, when Jesus found us. He may have used any kind of means to draw us to himself, but make no mistake, you weren't looking for God. God, thank God, was looking for you. And see, this is such an important thing that we shouldn't miss. The fact that God sought you out should raise your confidence to believe in the one that that went to such great lengths to find you and give you confidence that if he went to such great lengths to find you, he will never abandon you. If finding God and finding religion had been your doing, you could easily wander right off again. But why would the one who sought you through the cross and all its agony ever forsake you again? Guess what? He won't. Second, not only was uh, was Simon not looking for Jesus, but Simon was seized. He was compelled. He was brought in against his desire. He was taken from his comfortable position as a spectator and recruited for service he did not ask for. See, the Bible is very clear about the way this thing works that we call salvation. The Bible never points out that we humbly offer ourselves to God at His invitation, but rather that we are given to Christ by the Father. John 17, 6, Jesus is praying the night before he's crucified. And he said I, to the Father, he said, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me and they've kept your word. See, in many places in the scriptures, this is sometimes uncomfortable, but in many places in the scripture, we're actually called slaves or servants of Christ. That's that's an uncomfortable thing. But keep in mind about the, the analogy that's being painted there. Slaves do not trade themselves on the open market. 
They're there at the will of another. They're bought, they're sold at the will of another. See, in life, because we live in a fallen world, I've said this before, you will either be a slave of sin or you will be a slave of Christ. There is no third option. And under the taskmaster of sin, you will be oppressed, you will be tormented, you will eventually be destroyed. But when Christ purchases you and you become the slave, the servant of Christ, something incredible happens, an amazing transformation. And this is what it is. You begin to realize that you're not a slave at all, but you are living as a son or daughter in the household of God. Next, the Bible tells us that Simon was coming in from the country. See, none of us start off, no matter what we think about our childhood and the church we grew up in, none of us start off close to where Jesus is. We don't have any connection to him. We don't have any connection to the heavenly place from which he originates, none whatsoever. This is how Paul told the Ephesians this very reality. He said, remember... Do you remember that at one time you were separated from Christ? That you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel? That you were strangers to the covenants of promise? Having no hope and without God in the world. Sounds like a pretty desperate position, doesn't it? But see, Jesus brings us to himself from a foreign place. We don't have his heart. We don't have his thoughts. We don't have his ways. We know nothing of his customs. We know nothing of his values. But he lays his hands on us. He seizes us. He compels us. And he thrusts us into his story. See, we thought he would, you know, we could pray a prayer, walk an aisle, and he would come in and play a part in our story. But in reality, he recruits us for his story. And this is what it means to be saved and, and to be, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to become like Him through the ongoing process of the sanctification, of sanctification by the Spirit. So how does, but here's the question, and how does this all tie together? How does He conform us to His image and sanctify us? By placing the cross on our shoulders. And calling us to die to everything that we've known, willingly forsaking it all, that we might have him. Paul said in Philippians, he said, that he wants to know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, if you look up the passage, it's in that order. The, 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 uh, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Doesn't that seem backwards to you? That, that, you know, we should have to go through the suffering so we can get to the resurrection. That's not what Paul's saying at all. He's saying that the, that the fellowship that we have with his suffering is a constant as we constantly in this life through the process of sanctification experience the power of his resurrection. Every day is a cross day. And every day is a rising again day. Every day for the believer. And someday, someday the cross will be put away forever and we will walk out in brand new bodies. 
Paul also in that same portion of Scripture says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Lay it all down and grab the one thing worth having. Lastly, truly identifying with the cross of Christ will forever change our lives and our destinies. Now, we've already considered whether Simon may have come to know this man whose cross he carried not only as a condemned criminal, but as Savior and Lord. Did such a change perhaps happen and lastingly impact his wife and children? But even if it didn't happen, and I've already admitted we can't prove it one way or another, at least we know that a man who never had met Jesus or never thought about Jesus, is now, as long as Scripture endures, eternally tied to the story of Christ's passion because he carried his cross. We don't know at all what Simon did for a living. Don't know when or where he was born, how he died. Don't know any of that. But we do know that he carried the cross. And it was the carrying of the cross that gave this otherwise unknown man meaning, purpose, and legacy. So my question is this. What about you and I? Are we satisfied to think of the cross only as an instrument of redemption without ever truly and personally identifying with it? See, it's at the cross where we're redeemed, but it's also, at the, it's also the cross we have to carry if we're truly going to be reckoned as followers of Christ. It is the cross that not only uh, establishes Christianity, but the cross defines Christianity. We're not defined by the church we go to, the theological camp we belong to, the charitable deeds we engage in, the morality we promote. We are defined by the cross that we joyfully carry for the glory of Jesus' name. Paul said this. He said, But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What a wonderful thing, the cross of Jesus, in which we find our redemption, in which we find our identity. This is a time in human history where everybody is very concerned about their identity and how they want to be identified. I identify with the cross. That's the identity I want. That's the identity I embrace as a carrier of the cross. And may God help me to do it faithfully. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, thank you again for the cross. Thank you for the wisdom that was, that was displayed in the cross. Thank you for the way that you rescued us by the cross. Thank you for the way that you reconciled us by the cross. And thank you, Lord, that grace looks like you calling us to the cross, calling us to uh, take up our cross and follow you. Lord, To as you... God, just endured the agony of the cross because of the joy that was set before you. Lord, I pray that we too would be people who endure the cross because of the joy that awaits us in knowing you, the joy that awaits us in in obeying you, the joy that awaits us in being with you for all eternity. So Lord, don't don't let this reality slip past us. Help us to see 
the beauty of the cross. In your precious holy name, amen. You guys be seated for just a moment. We are going to take the Lord's Supper together now uh, as we close out the night. And as we prepare our hearts to do that, um, I want to, in just a second, read a poem to you from John Newton that was very much a blessing to me as I've been reading it and thinking about it. I spoke to a woman at work today, and she just seemed really, really kind of down and discouraged. And and as I was talking to her, she said, you know, today is just, today is such a, a bad day. I said, I said, well, what do you mean? I said, are you talking about Good Friday? She said, yeah, just when I think about what Jesus suffered, I just feel so, I feel so terrible. And, and she then went on to say that she said, really the entire Easter weekend, I always feel bad every year. I just feel so bad thinking of what Christ suffered. And, and so we, we, chatted for a little while as at work we didn't have a lot of time but we we chatted for a little while and i was thinking you know i think she's i think she's partially right i think today is a day for sorrow for somber reflection as we as we think about and we confess that it's it's because of my sin that christ hung on the cross it's because of my sin that he bore the wrath of God. And yet at the same time, today is a good day. Today's a day that, that we celebrate. Today's a day that rejoice in what Christ accomplished, that when he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. And that all the work of redemption was finished and completed as he suffered and died for his people. And so as I was thinking about coming to the Lord's table um, tonight, and really as, as we do this every week in commemoration of Christ, uh, I was thinking that, that really we come in a similar way to the Lord's table. As, as we come and we, we take the bread and we take the cup, in one sense there, there should be a, a, a sense of somber reflection as we think that it's, it's because of me, it's because of my sin that Christ's body was broken and that his blood was shed. But at the same time, we come as believers, we come to the table joyfully with thanksgiving, knowing that what he accomplished on the cross has set us free and has given us life, knowing that we are loved and chosen by him and invited by him to come and feast at his table. And so... Um, as I was thinking about that, um, I found this poem. And as as you and I prepare our hearts to, to come to the table, um, I want you to think about what, what John Newton says here. Um, and I'm going to ask our communion workers if they would come forward and prepare to serve. But let me let me read this to you. This is from John Newton. And this is titled, In Evil Long I Took Delight. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object met my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree, 
in agony and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never to my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience owned and felt the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had shed and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayst live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. And so I want to invite you, if if you are a believer and if you have placed your trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to come to the table. And as you come, may we say along with John Newton, Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. So if you come and partake of the elements and then go back to your seat, and we'll take these together in just a moment. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Father, we give you thanks. for sending and offering up your only son on our behalf. Jesus, thank you for your body broken for us through which we are made whole and set free and given eternal life in your presence. Thank you for thank you for your blood that has washed us and made us clean from every stain of sin. Thank you that we are Justified that we stand righteous in the sight of the Father because of what you have done for us, Jesus. May we remember that today and may we remember that and give thanks for that every day, Lord. Every day and still until we stand in your presence and can give thanks face to face. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. can
Father, we just thank you tonight for, Lord, just your faithfulness. Lord, your mercy on us. Father, that by sending your son to die in our place, to bear the wrath that was reserved for us, Lord. We're just so grateful, Father. Let us never take that for granted, Lord. Never let it become just a passing thought or something that we get used to. Lord, in this church culture, it can become so easy to just say empty words and to have empty worship, but I pray that our hearts and our minds would be constantly reminded, Lord, of the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. Father, that you be you bestowed the wrath on, on Christ. Jesus, that you drank the cup dry, Lord, that there's not a drop left for us. There's not an ounce of guilt left for us to bear, Lord, for our sin. every punishment knowing no sin you became our sin father how precious a sacrifice Lord I pray that our response to that would just be nothing but a sacrifice as well Lord that our worship would be a pleasing sacrifice to you Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we we seek to honor you with our whole lives, Father. Nothing that we could ever re- do could ever repay, Lord, what you've done for us. But thank you, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for your mercy, for your love that was poured out on that cross for us, Lord. In Jesus' name, we, we pray all of this, Lord, we... We sing all of these songs. We say all of these words in your, for your glory. Lord, may your name be magnified and glorified in our hearts, Lord. Amen. All right, you all are dismissed. Have a great Easter weekend with your families, and we will see you again on Sunday.